Welcome to City on a Hill's podcast. This week's podcast can be downloaded on iTunes or our media library at chccny.com. If you have your Bibles, let's open them up. I am going to bring it today. I am. I will hold nothing back. Uh, if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Ruth chapter 3. We have some Bibles here. If you need one, if you would like to follow the story, the greatest romance novel ever written today. That's what you're here for. All right, let's open a word of prayer. Lord, Lord, I thank you that the flower may fade and the grass may wither, but your word stands forever. Not for a day, not for a year. It stands forever. It is timeless. It is changeless. It doesn't come back void. It is infallible. I thank you that this story that we look at today, even though we are 3,000 years removed, is applicable to where we are at living in 21st century American society. I thank you that you want to breathe life into us today. Spirit of the living God, I ask that you would break out in this place. As we heard that song, Lord, we want you to breathe on us, break out, Lord, hit every single person, permeate this place, permeate this room, may your fire fall, break out, have your way, show up in our midst, Lord, as we look at this beautiful story. Oh, we, I put the rest of this time in your hands, Lord, as the speaker, Lord, use me and the planning and the preparation that I've done. Lord, anoint every single word that comes out. In your name, amen. Even that was fun. (laughs) Gosh. Well, if you weren't here for the last two weeks, let me give you a quick uh, recap. We started two weeks ago in the first chapter of this wonderful book in our series, Redeeming Ruth. I have not enjoyed a series like this in a long time. I really haven't. I enjoy when I preach, don't get me wrong, but this is just so exciting. It's so much fun. And I'm a guy and I'm preaching from a text that you would think is more, you know, for the women, but it's not. It is for us. And two weeks ago, we looked at, we started the story and we saw it starts out with what? This, this woman, Naomi, is married to a man named Elimelech. And they live where? They live in Bethlehem, but there is a famine. There was a famine, and they, had, they eventually they leave their home with their two boys, Malin and Killian. And where do they go? They go to Moab. And Moab is, is a place that you would never think an Israelite would go, because they are sworn enemies with the Israelites. Not a place, not a, not a desirable place, not a hospitable place, but they head out there. And they make their way and they get settled there. And the two boys wind up marrying Moabite women, Ruth and Orpah. Well, not long after that, the father of Limelech died, if you remember. The two boys, Malin and Killian, died. And you have three women that are left in the story. It's Naomi, it's Ruth, and it's Orpah. Naomi hears that God has visited Bethlehem again, that the famine is indeed over at the end of chapter 1, and she decides to head back. They go back to Bethlehem. Orpah decides to stay, but Ruth, her daughter-in-law, heads with her. And if you remember two weeks ago, that that incredible vow at the end of chapter 1, how it's astonishing that this woman from Moab would immigrate to a place where she knows that her life is going to be worse than where she currently is. 
And then last week, when the story picked up again, we met Big Bad Boaz. All right? And we said Boaz, he know, Bo, Bo knows a lot. He's a very wealthy businessman. And here is Ruth, Ruth and Naomi. They're poor. They're destitute. They don't know what they're going to do. And Ruth decides, since she's younger, Naomi's too old, Ruth decides, I'm going to go glean in the field. And one day she heads out and she just happened to glean and find the field of Boaz. She She just happened to go out and find this guy's field who just happened to be one of her kinsman redeemer. She just happened to find this field. She just happened to find favor in the sight of big bad Boaz. And at the end of the chapter, we ended last week with, she headed home with a huge, a huge amount of grain, of barley over her shoulder, like a big bag of dog food, enough food to feed her and Naomi for almost a month. Now you're caught up. Now let's get to the really good stuff. All right, chapter three. Okay, verses one and two. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, talking to Ruth, my daughter, stop right there, my daughter. It appears eight times in the book of Ruth, more than any other book in the Bible. How affectionate is this now? This Naomi, if you remember that we saw in chapter one, at the end of chapter one, when she comes back to Bethlehem, she's been gone for at least a decade, and she comes back and she says, don't call me Naomi. Naomi in Hebrew means pleasant. She says, call me Mara, which means bitter. And she says, I left empty, but I, I mean, I left full, but I came back empty. And here is a woman now has changed. She was so self-centered earlier. Here is a woman now that is changing. Her perspective on life is changing. So she says that, my daughter, shall I not seek security for you? Thinking about her, her daughter-in-law, thinking about Ruth selflessly, that it may be well with you. Now Boaz, whose young women were, you were with, is he not our relative? In fact, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Does anybody want to go to the threshing floor with me today? Does anybody want to go? Yeah, why not? Well, we live in 21st century America, and unless you studied agriculture in college, which I doubt many of you did, it's a term you see, well, two terms. You see threshing and winnowing in the Bible. And I'm not expecting that you would know this. So I decided, let me give you a couple of pictures here. The first term, threshing, what this would mean. First of all, this is, this is an artist rendering. I'll show you another one that's probably a little bit better. But this is a circular area that was a little elevated above ground, a threshing floor above ground. There was usually stone on the outside of it. And it was in an area that was elevated so that the wind could blow. It was a public place that when when they weren't winnowing and threshing on this floor here, it was a place where they sold different types of goods. Well, the first part, as the text just said to us, Threshing, what does that mean? That means if you see the animals there, usually oxen, cattle, whatever, they, whatever animals they wanted to use, they would crush the stalks of grain. And they would have a huge pile of it. And then what is that? That's what threshing was. And then winnowing. The man would take a winnowing fork, say it had like five or six prongs on it, and they would throw the grain, after it was trampled on by the animals, they would throw it into the air in the breeze, and with the fork, the chaff 
by the breeze would blow away and the valuable grain would fall right at their feet. And that's what they would use. They would, they would take all the dirt and the debris off. That's what threshing and winnowing is. This is a celebratory time. You don't know it when you read the text here. Here's another picture. I'll show you. This is probably a better picture of that grain there. This is like somebody who just hit the jackpot, like the Powerball jackpot, whatever it was last night. This is a lot of money for somebody. This is a seven to, week, seven to eight week event. This is Shavat. I said it last week. That's what they're celebrating here. You don't know it when you're reading tech, the text, but that's what's going on. This is a Jewish festival. There is singing. There is dancing. There is drinking. There is. That's, it was, everybody was in a joyous celebratory mood. This is the end in chapter 3. Six or seven weeks have elapsed. This is the end of Shabbat. And the question, friends, that we have to ask in this story, will Ruth wear white? Will there be babies? Is it going to happen? Because this is the end. This is her last chance. She's, she's a temp worker. After Shabbat is over, she's going to have to find another way to make a living. Interesting. So Naomi, her dear mother-in-law, comes up with a plan. And the plan is, you are going to go down and see Big Bad Boaz. A crazy plan. I want to go over the options. Let's Let's go over the options. Option one is, option one is, you are actually... In this society, let's break it down this way. In Jewish society, the first option was a father would marry off their daughter. Just like in our day today, right? What do you do? You fathers that have daughters, you've walked them down the aisle. You give them away to that man, right? Right? I'm looking at my father-in-law, making sure he's awake. You walk your daughters down the aisle and you give them away. What's the problem with option one for Ruth in this story? 3,000 years ago in this story, she doesn't have a daddy. He's, we don't know. He maybe is in Moab. We don't know if he's alive. We know nothing about Mr. Ruth whatever. We don't know who he is, okay? So option one doesn't look too good. Normally, the man would go and talk to the, uh, the groom's parents, and they would come up with what is known as a bride price. This is the price you have to pay. You want my daughter? First of all, I want to see your doctoral statement. Second of all, I want to see your 401k. I want to talk to you. Really? Those are the kind of, they wouldn't obviously use those words, but you wanted to sit down with that man as a father. Ruth's father is not in the picture to do so. So option one is probably not going to work. Here's the second option. Ruth is from Moab. If you remember, I told you Moab, the Moabites were a very loose people. That's an understatement. They were sexually perverted. And how did, that, how did this culture even start? A daughter got her father inebriated and then got into bed with him. And this whole culture, out of this, this incestuous relationship, a son is born. They name him Moab. This is where she comes from. This is Moab. This is Ruth, who has come from Moab. It is a totally different culture. It is the antithesis of Israel and what the Israelites believe in. Can I talk, can I stop for a second? Because you, you think, uh, James, this is 3,000 years ago. This is really, how does this have to do with us? And I'm here to tell you this morning, I'm going to blow your mind now. 
There, is so, we, there are so many similarities between Moab and 21st century America. Okay. The history of dating. You ready? Here we go. Put your seatbelts on. Did you know that the word dating originated in 1896? It was a low social class, like a slang term for prostitution. It really is. You can go look it up. In the 1900s, so I'm going to move you through a century, and I'm going to do it pretty quickly. In the 1900s, women would enter into a relationship of, really in a sense, courting engagement and marriage through a process called calling. A boy would, and some of you know, a boy would call on a woman. You would make an appointment with the woman and her family. You would hang out. You'd hang out with the mother. You'd hang out with the father. You'd hang out with the father's gun. You would hang out with the whole family, right? So you're there. You're hanging out with everybody. You made that appointment. It wasn't like you had private time. No, no, no. When you called on that woman in 1900, you'd hang out with the family. It would be a lot of fun. But when the appointment was over, you would leave. All right, let's fast forward. If you look up on the screens here, um, 1900, in the beginning of the 1900s, there we go. Um, This is the Ladies' Home Journal. It quickly sold a million copies. And what's interesting about this is that when this came out in the early 1900s, it was a new voice that was talking to women in society about what guys like what you should wear, and what you should do. For the first time in American history, you have an outside source competing with the voice of parents in society telling girls what they should do and what is desirable. All right? You following me? Okay. Fast forward from there. Now move ahead. Let's go to the 1920s. Urbanization increases. You see, that's a picture of a car. Thank you, Henry Ford. You can have, any co- you can have the, the, the Model T in any color you want, as long as it's black. You see a couple here. He revolutionizes the auto industry in the 1920s. People are now able to what? They can travel shorter distances with urbanization. People, if you're a guy... You can now go to a house. You don't have to make appointments and call on the girl anymore. Now with automobiles, they're made cheaper. You can go to the girl's house. You can take her away from the house. And you can actually go on a date. You take her out to dinner. You could go to a show. You could do whatever. Go to a movie. That's the 1920s. Let's go to the 1940s. Things are going to change a little bit more. Are you with me? Yes, yes, okay. Men start to realize they're spending a lot of money. I told you last week, this sermon is PG-13. Men are starting to spend a lot more money post-World War II. So they're spending money. They're taking the girls out. They're they're spending this. And they're, they're saying, you know what? We should be getting something in return for the time that we're spending, taking them out to dinner. Yet finish the last sentence there, right? You get it. You want to define that. What? That's prostitution. That becomes much more prevalent in the 1960s. The sexual revolution. Some of you lived through this. The whole counterculture movement. How many of you remember that? Yes, yes. Some of you are afraid to kind of raise your hands. The counterculture movement of the 60s. And what do we see in the 60s? Birth control. 
So now women, it becomes more prevalent from what I said about the 40s. And now women, what? If you don't want to have a baby, you can take the pill. You don't have to worry about getting pregnant. You are now sexually liberated in the 1960s. If you're a woman, fast forward, 1973, Roe versus Wade. What did that do? It outlawed abortion. It gave women the right to privacy to have an abortion. Society changed. Look at this over the course of a century. And then 19, well, even in the 1970s too. How about magazines like Playboy and Penthouse? They used to be hidden in stores. You'd have to ask. In the 1970s into the 80s, they're now on shelves with all the other magazines. Like when you go to the store, right? And you check out even today, the smut that they put out there, those magazines, a little different. But still, in the 1980s, especially late 70s into the 80s, that was the idyllic, prototypical woman that was there. And society told us, men, that's the kind of woman that we were supposed to go after. We think we woke up one day and said, this is, uh, this is, this is how life really is. We don't sit there and think sometimes where we started only a century ago. This is the world that you were born into. It is very much like Moab. It is not biblical and it is not Christian. You should clap for that. Are you kidding me? When you look at this world, the devil is trying to blind us. He is trying to make us believe that what we see out there and what the what culture tells us a woman is supposed to do, what she is supposed to wear, is right. It is diametrically opposed to what that bo- this book right here says. Right here. It is opposed to what this book says about dating and relationships and marriage. The evil one is trying to steal, kill, and destroy from us. Some of you don't want to hear that. I have to talk to the young kids about this. They don't think about it. They don't really know. They just think, ah, it's the way it is. I see this on TV and the TV shows and women, they're dressed provocatively and how they talk to each other. This is not the way God intended for things to be. And we better be a people that are countercultural. We better be. Because if not, then what are we doing here? Really, what are we doing here? Back to the story, okay? Here's the third option. So the first option is courting, right? You, you called on the woman. The second option is, I guess we'll call it dating. There's a third option. I'm going to call it dorting. Like dating, courting, get it? Like dorting? You don't like that. That was terrible. Retract that statement. <laughs> Uh, let's call it you pull a Ruth, okay? How about that? You pull a Ruth is the third option here. Because we said she is somebody that is very loose. We said she's from Moab, but she's going to do something in the story, and you're going to look and say, what's really going on here? Is Naomi telling her to cross the line? Is she telling her to do that? And I would say no. She's telling her to dance on it vigorously. She is, really. This is a story we've misunderstood. And this is a text preachers don't like to preach from. But I'm enjoying preaching it today. I am. I'm not scared of it. Bring it. Next verse, it picks up. Ready? Ruth 3.3. Therefore, she tells her, 
wash yourself and anoint yourself. Put on your best garment and go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. Oh my gosh, so much material here. If you are, a, how many of you women in here are not married? Do I have any unmarried women in here? Okay. If you are not married, there's a couple of things I like to point out in the text. The last thing says, she, Naomi, really good advice. Wait till the man has finished eating and drinking. It's probably a good idea. There's something about us men, right men, do, right? If we don't eat, we are ornery. We get very angry. We get uptight. You want to have a conversation before you go all train wreck and you get all emotional, right? You better make sure you feed him. It's right in the text. First part, it says, therefore, wash yourself. Did you know in ancient times, they didn't wash once a day. And it was rare that you even washed once a week. I said last week, she probably didn't smell too good when she's out in the fields gleaning. She's dirty. She's muddy. Well, what is Naomi saying? Okay, ointment was put on. Perfume was put on. Let's call it Moabite madness. She puts on Moabite madness because it's a special occasion. Come on, you don't like the name? That was creative. Moabite madness. She puts it on, right? Naomi's telling her, listen, shave your armpits. It looks like you have Don King in a headlock. You need to clean yourself up. Go to the nail salon. Fix your hair. Make yourself look real nice. The only way he's ever seen you before is funkified and you don't smell too good. You, he needs to see you in a different light. So wash your face. Clean yourself up. Women, how many of you, right? You remember your first date, maybe your husband? Oh, gosh, you went on that date, right? You were getting prepped for that date. You changed your outfit five times. You took a two-hour shower, changed your makeup, did all different things. Come on, are you kidding me? How about me? As a guy, this is funny. I don't even know if, I think you know this. (laughs) First date, I don't even know. I'm like seventh or eighth grade. And anybody that knows me well, (laughs) I go to the movies. I don't even remember who the girl is, right? Go to the movies. I don't remember what movie it is. In the car on the way home. I'm going to make you answer this. My in-laws, what do you think I did in the car on the way home? Fell asleep. Boom. Out. (laughs) Out. I fell asleep. My mom's like, James, James, wake up. (laughs) Kind of funny, right? I mean, I fell asleep anywhere. Growing up, I would ask my, right, Keith, I I would just pass out. I'd go over his house. I'd have people over my house. Over my house. When people come over your house, you're supposed to stay up last. You're supposed to help them. I would escape and go upstairs and pass out in my bed. You're on your own. Fend for yourself. Food's in the fridge. (laughs) So here she is. It is her first date. She's telling her, change your appearance and do something that is incredibly risky. Risky. You are going to go to a very public place and you're going to meet him. And I don't want you to just go up again before. I I want you to be very secretive. This has to be shrouded in secrecy. And I want you to walk up like a ninja. And I want you to go up there. And I don't want you to be seen. You have to hide. Because this would be impropriety if a woman was seen going up to the threshing floor like this. Only prostitutes did this. Hosea 9, this is good. Hosea 9, 1 talks about the fact that prostitutes, during the season of Shabbat, at the end of it, people would stay. The men, Boaz, is going to sleep at the threshing floor. And if you read this before, you're like, why is the dude sleeping? Doesn't he have a bed somewhere? He has a lot of money, right? I would think he does. No, no, no. 
they would sleep with their grain because this is, this is the money that they made. It's proverbial money in their pocket. Prostitutes would go down to the threshing floor as the men were sleeping there at night because they knew they had money in their pockets and they were looking to get something because remember, this is during the time of the judges and people did what was right in their own sight, just kind of like today in American society. People do what's right in their own eyes and they would go there and things would happen no different than American culture. And how about taking risks? You know why I love Ruth? One of the characteristics, one of the attributes of this woman, she's willing to take risks. Naomi, she's willing to take risks. Whatever happened to us as Christians, we always play it safe. Forget about boredom. You know what we are? We're voyeurs. We kind of just watch everything from behind the glass. And we look and we see. If we want romance, we go watch The Notebook. Or we read a Nicholas Sparks book. It's true. If we want adventure, we go watch The Matrix. Or we watch Lord of the Rings. If we want to watch a hero, we watch Braveheart or Gladiator. And we sit there and we pay. I was thinking about the other day as I saw The Great Gatsby. Which, by the way, is a good movie. And I'm in the movie theater. I'm thinking about it. I'm going, we sit there. What do we pay? $15 for a movie ticket? Whatever it is. And we sit there with our popcorn or our soda. At least you do. And we sit in the movie. And we watch this movie. And we're like, yeah, this is great. And we're all like inspired by it. But we actually are deluded because we sit in that chair and we think we're really living watching these characters. We live vicariously through them. Wow, this is really great. I'm really living right now. Oh, reality TV. I'm going to watch The Bachelor. I'm going to watch The Bachelorette. All these shows that we watch, that's not living. We need to take risks. Let me show you a quote here. This is by John Piper. You've heard me talk a lot about JP, we're close. After we have poured, in, listen to this. After we have poured into our children all the good food and shelter and clothing, after we have provided them with great education, discipline, structure, and love, after we have worked so hard to provide every good thing, they turn to us and ask, "Why have you given all of this to me?" And the honest answer from me is, "So you'll be safe." And my kid looks up at me and says, "Really? That's it? You want me to be safe?" Your grand ambition for my life is that nothing bad happens? Oops. And I think something inside them dies. They either go away to perish in safety or they go away looking for adventure in the wrong places. Jesus, on the other hand, affirms their sense of adventure and their yearning for larger glory. Wow. And I am undone as I read a quote like that. Why do we wonder why our kids are running around after all different things? Not even kids, all of us. It's because we're living a life that we're not supposed to live. We're looking for adventure in the wrong places. We're playing it safe. We were never intended to play it safe. This is the adventure of a lifetime. And God says, what I have in store for you is beyond comprehension. It is beyond your imagination. I've given you an imagination to think about things. But think about what I have in store for you. If you'll believe me and you'll trust me at my word. If you'll trust where I put you in life. You will see that I have incredible things stored up for you. Oh, do not Play it safe. But that's what we do. Right? Makes me think I've shared it before. I wasn't going to share this, but why not? It just dropped on me. What is, what is the place, what is the wealthiest place on this planet? Does anybody ever remember me saying this to you? Do you remember? What? 
graveyard. If you haven't heard me say that, it's, it's worth repeating. Why is it the wealthiest place on the planet? Because that's where people go and they, that, that die and they have dreams. They, they dreamt about certain things they were never fulfilled. Maybe cures for things, songs that were never written, all different types of things that they were supposed to do, but it never came to fruition. I think a lot of people did not risk. One of my favorite, I tell my social kids every semester, one of my favorite sociological studies, they asked people over the age of 90 years old, they asked them one question. They said, if you had to do your life over again, what would you do different? They had to say it twice because they were all over the age of 90. And they said, you, and the number one answer was, if you had to do it over again, you know what the people said? They would have risked more risked more with their lives. What right now? Let me stop. What is God telling you to risk right now? I'm not talking about foolish risks. I'm talking, what is God put in your spirit that you know beyond a shadow of a doubt? It's him. And he's saying, when are you going to jump out of the boat? Get out of the boat. Will you get out of the boat already? What is he saying in your life? What risk are you supposed to take? Because this woman, these women, I should say, in the story, take an incredible risk. Oh, we should be risk takers. And then we move on. Here we go. Three, four. Then it shall be when he lies down, Naomi talking again, that you shall notice the place where he lies and you shall go in, uncover his feet and lie down. And he will tell you what you should do. Hmm. I want you to understand this first. This is where it gets a little uncomfortable. This is where if you're a fundamentalist, you want to grab the aspirin. This is a sexy scene, but it is not a sex scene. Let me say that again. This scene that we're looking at right here today, we don't talk enough about sex in the church. We act like it's taboo. It's not taboo. We should be talking about it. We should be talking about it right now. This is not a sex scene, though, but this is a sexy scene. And here you have Ruth, who is wearing a cloak. In Hebrew, it doesn't say that. She's concealing her identity. Now, understand this too. It's late at night and she's coming down. Are there any, we have lights in here today. Do you think there are, were there lights on the threshing floor there and there's music going, do you think there's music going on? That was pretty good, right? And there's music going on down on the threshing floor, right? Do you think that's what was going on? I do that with my kids at school. They love it. And they do it. It's like, you do it again. You do it again. All right, all right, all right. has to be spontaneous. Take it easy. So were there lights like that? No. Were there lanterns? They couldn't have lanterns there because they would be worried about burning up the grain. It is a pitch black area that this woman has to walk into and she has to conceal her identity. You walk down there, she's a Moabite woman. If other people saw her walking down to the threshing floor, they would think that she's up to no good. She would be in danger for her life. Does everyone see that in the story? Because that's what's going on here. And Naomi tells her, this is exactly what you're to do. And this is bold. It's not brazen, but this is very bold. So she's laying down at the feet of a guy that's had a few drinks. Is he drunk? You may be thinking that in the text. No, he is not. He has had a couple of drinks and he's celebrating. That's a sermon for another time. I'm not getting into that right now. But he has had a couple of drinks, which was customary with what these individuals did. This is what those people did. Three, five through seven. And she said to her, Ruth saying, all that you say to me, I will do. Oh, I love Ruth. So she went down to the threshing floor and did according to all that her mother-in-law instructed her. And after Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was cheerful, he went down, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of the grain. And she came softly, uncovered his feet and lay down. 
Remember again, she has to, I'm thinking, I'm watching the scene. I'm going, if Ruth really, this woman really did this. This really happened 3,000 years ago. There was really a woman that did this. She comes up on the scene. She'd have to like find out which guy is him. She'd have to know his voice, right? If it's really pitch black over there, it's like, I'm Boaz. You know? like, I, she'd have to know Boaz's voice. I'm kind of, he's big, bad Boaz. He'd probably talk like that. She has to know which guy it is. God forbid she goes down and she lies at the feet of somebody else that's not Boaz. She would be in serious trouble. Do you see the risk that this woman is taking? You may miss it when you read the text. There's so much going on here. This is payday. Boaz has just hit the jackpot. He's at the end of the grain pile. And this woman comes up. How bold she is. How she takes an incredible risk. Three, eight, three, nine. Now, it happened at midnight. Now, literally in that culture, you went to bed. Like, they went to bed when the sun set, went down. They were, they were, they were done. Maybe they stayed up for a little while on this kind of night, Shabbat, to mark, you know, the celebration of the end of the harvest. But when they, the text says it's midnight, it literally is. It's the middle of the night. Boaz, one, one commentary said this. It was funny that she pro- he's probably snoring in the scene. All right, some of you women know, right? Your husband snore really bad. I... Do I say, why not? He's not here. Pastor Joe is not here this morning. He's a snorer, by the way. I went to Florida like two years ago, a couple years ago. My father-in-law, I'll never forget it. Worst night of sleep I've ever had in my life. I go to sleep. I wake up at like 12 o'clock. I don't know, 1 o'clock. And it sounds like a dump truck has entered the room. I don't know what, I'm like, what is that noise? I take, literally, it's my father and I love him dearly. I take the pillow and I just throw it on his, I hit him right in the head. Boom, hit him right in the head. He stopped snoring. I slept the rest of the night. I don't know why, you don't need to know that. But anyway, so uh, where was I? Okay, now it happened at midnight that the man was startled and turned himself. And there a woman was lying at his feet. One more story. Man, you ever, this is another, I'm giving you a lot of things about me today. I'm just very open. I'm being very transparent with you. Right? Don't I always do this? Megan will come home, like if she's out, and I go to bed. I'm in the bed. I'm a light sleeper. And she'll, <laughs> love this, she'll, she'll come in the room, and I'm like, ah! I jump up out of the bed. She's like, honey, honey, it's all right. It's like I'm right there, like the crane kick. I'm ready to go. Thinking it's like an intruder. She's like, ah! Oh. She's like, right, because she knows I know Kung Fu. So she's like, honey, we'll take it easy. <laughs> Can you imagine this guy's face? Why am I telling you? Can you imagine what this guy's face is like? Oh my gosh, a woman is here? Who is this woman? What was she doing here? She's not supposed to be here at the threshing floor. And he said, who are you? So she answered, I am Ruth, your maidservant. Notice one thing. She does not say, I am Ruth the Moabitess. Ooh. The author has been saying it to you the whole story. He doesn't want you to forget who she is. But Naomi told you earlier before, wash your face. You know what that means? That means it's time for us as people here today. It's time to wash your face. And whatever has happened in the past, it's in the past. Forgetting those things that are behind. It's time to move forward. It's time to strive forward, friends. And listen, when the enemy tells you, he reminds you of your past, just remind him of his future. (laughs) Remind him of his future, really. The enemy is constantly trying to remind us and bring up our past. Bring up our past. You're not worthy. You can't do this. What if she sat there and said, you know what? This is not worth the risk. I am not going to do this. She would have missed out on the greatest adventure of her life. 
Did I even get to the end? I am Ruth, your maidservant. What does that mean? It means I'm yours, Boaz. I am yours. Hook, line, and sinker. This is the mo- you know, this is Hollywood where the music starts, they cue the music up, the notebook kind of movies, the, you know, the, the romance movies, the Titanic movies, and they cue the music up, and they let us see, and it's like, oh, and the women start to cry. Actually, I'm the one that cries. Megan doesn't cry at movies. She doesn't. I cry. Yeah. <laughs> don't judge me, men. You're all judging me. <laughs> I don't admit that at school, though. Kids are like, does your wife cry a lot at movies? I'm like, yeah, you know, sometimes. I have to, like, keep it together. You know, like, come on. It's all right. <laughs> I'm the one that cries. I can't tell kids. Listen, I can't tell 11th and 12th grade kids that. I'd be done. I'd be done forever. Mr. Lecce will be on Facebook, Twitter. Mr. Lecce cries in movies. Yeah. Okay. So, Ruth's statement here. You want some, you, you students of the Bible. When it says, some translations say, put your blanket over me. That is akin to, in our culture, of putting a ring on the finger. She's saying, hey, Bo, put the ring on my finger. I want to get married. You women are going, whoa, she's proposing here? No, 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 no. She's proposing that he propose to her. That's really what's going on. That's what's going on here. She's proposing that he would actually propose to her because she wants to get married. You see, she's not looking for a one-night stand. She's looking for a legacy. She's looking for a relationship, and she's looking to get married. Oh, gosh, this is not the Ruth that we, we knew maybe some time ago or the Ruth that was a young girl growing up in Moab that maybe was very loose. The text doesn't say that, but think about it. She lived in Moab, a very different culture than in Israel. It's kind of cool when you think about it. So she wants to, she's saying, and this was, this was custom. The man would take, that blanket means like he's, when he covered you, I'm taking you as my wife. There is nothing sexual that happens in this, right, this story right here. There were a few commentators, and gosh, crazy. Most of the commentators that, have, that I really respect, everybody here says she's laying at his feet, his actual feet, and nothing happens. Here is a woman that is, has impeccable character. She is a new follower of Jehovah. And here is a man, Boaz, who also has impeccable character and integrity. And you look at this too. This is amazing. She is crossing some taboos here. Younger person asking an older person. You don't do that. Woman asking a man. You don't do that. Moabite asking a Hebrew. You don't do that. Employee asking an employer. She is incredibly bold. And here's that phrase that we cherish. Now, my whole last sermon, it's not going to be next week. I'm going to be away at a graduation. I get to listen to the president speak next week. And our cousin, I'm excited. I'm, I'm, I'm stoked. I can't wait to go. So I won't be here. Can you forgive me for that? So I can do the last part. I am, listen, I'm excited. It's going to come to a crescendo, the last part. You don't want to miss it in two weeks. I can't wait. But I'm here in the third part. So in the last part, though, I'm going to talk all about what that kinsman redeemer thing really means. I'm going to touch on it a little bit now, but if you're wondering, trust me, I'm going to get back to it. I'm going to crush it in two weeks, okay? So the job, though, of a covenant redeemer was to redeem, like, you know, when they use the phrase there, like, close relative or never of kin, it really kind of falls short, as one commentator, he said, I think he's right, because they're leaving out the all-important aspect of redemption, why the series is called redeeming ruth because they're leaving out the aspect of what a covenant redeemer would do they would care for the unfortunate they would stand in and as you're going to see though next week there is tension in every love story right don't you know there's always tension 
And there is going to be somebody else that we're going to bring into the mix. Did you know Ruth doesn't even speak in the next chapter? This will be her last chapter. She will not say anything else to us. Isn't that, it's kind of weird. You would think that she'd be right there up to the very end. No, no, no. She will not speak and say another word. Big bad Boaz has to go out. He has some work to do. I'm almost done. I'm almost done. You with me? You still with me? You want more? (laughs) You're getting more. All right, 10 to 13. Then he said, blessed are you of the Lord, my daughter. Oh, there it is again. My daughter. Naomi said it earlier. The author is saying, and he's saying it now. For you have shown more kindness at the end than at the beginning in that you did not go after young men. Oh gosh, he is talking about her character again. Here is a younger woman. She is not running around trying to find these other men. He is, he is impressed with that. He is also impressed with the fact, again, I have to bring this up. What did she not do? She did not look and go after, not, not even just other people, but she has looked at him and she's taken care of her mother-in-law. He is impressed with how she has sacrificed everything, self-sacrificial love here, that she's given up everything for her mother-in-law. I had to say that. And that you would not go after young men, whether poor or rich. And now my daughter, he says it again, do not fear. I will do all for you that you request. For all the people of my town, look at this. For all the people of my town know that you are a virtuous woman. Virtuous woman, if you're thinking. Proverbs, what are we thinking? Proverbs, help me, come on. 31, same, same exact Hebrew word that is used there for this woman, Ruth, who has become a new convert. Are you kidding me? Yes, that's who she is in God's eyes. My daughter, do not fear. I'll do all for you, virtuous woman. Now it is true that I am a close relative. However, there is a relative closer than I. Stay this night and in the morning it shall be that if, uh, if he will perform the duty of a close relative for you, good, let him do it. But if he does not want to perform the duty for you, then I will perform the duty for you as the Lord lives. Lie down until morning. So that part there, what is he saying to her again? It is much too dangerous. Listen, there are some rednecks that are going to be out there still, and they're still lighting off fireworks. It's the end of the harvest. And I don't want you running out and trying to go home and risk getting hurt by one of these other men as you head out from the threshing floor. So he's saying, stay here at the threshing floor. When it's morning and it's safe, you get up, put the cloak back on, and you head back home to Naomi. But it's much too risky for you to leave right now. If anybody had seen them in the middle of the night... His reputation as a man that was a sadiq, as a man that had the ultimate respect in his community, it would have been tarnished. And so would have hers. These two individuals are taking a tremendous risk. And you wonder here too, when you look at the story, and he's, I have to bring this up because I think we look at it and we go, why would Boaz, this is such a mismatch, right? How many of you are like, what, how would he say this? He is, a, he is an Israelite. She is a new convert. She is now converted. But come on, she's much younger. I have to say, he is a smart man, right? He's older. He's possibly going to marry somebody that's a little bit younger, right? <laughs> I'm on a roll today. <laughs> well, it's true. I don't care. Listen, when you want to think about it, I don't really care what you think, but this is true for my own life. You want to talk, be vulnerable? I took a risk. People talked about me. They talked about my wife. My wife's nine years younger than me. People still talking? No, I'm being serious. No one knows what it was. It was rough. It was very rough. I know what it's like to take a risk. I know what it's like for people to whisper. I know what it's like to have to to really trust God and believe that he's working behind the scenes in my life. And look at my family now. 
Thank God every day. Stop crying. I told you Boaz what he looks like, right? He does not look like Brad Pitt. He's more on the Homer Simpson side, okay? I really think so. We're wondering. Like, we think that he's this hunk, this Hollywood hunk. No, Homer Simpson would play him in a movie, not Brad Pitt. So when you see this too, make sure when you're reading the story, that's how we're kind of looking at it. But you know why they're a perfect match? Because she sees in him that he's going to be an incredible husband. He's going to be an incredible father. He has impeccable character. And she has all of those things too that he is looking for. Friends, it may look on the outside like they're not a perfect match, but they indeed are. You can start, music team, you can start to come up and get ready. They are a perfect match. And as we close here, I told you I'm not going to go into great detail on the Redeemer piece, but so she laid his feet until morning and she arose before one could recognize another. Then he said, do not let it be known that the woman came to the threshing floor, obviously. Also, he said, bring the shawl that is on you and hold it. I love this. And when she held it, he measured six ephahs of barley and laid it on her. Then she went into the city. You know what scholars say about this? This is wild. It was six. What's the number for perfection in the Bible? Seven. Six, because she has not been redeemed yet. Oh! (laughs) Yeah, God. Yeah, God. You tell me that the word of God is not inspired? Foolishness! All right, I'll give you the last verse, and I promise I'll stop. Oh, this was the last verse. I'm sorry. In the, and even earlier, should I give it? Yeah, I'll say it too. All right, in closing, as we come to the table. She asked a couple of verses ago, cover me. Now he's saying, open up that shawl, open it up, so I can cover you by giving you all of this food. And notice too, remember in chapter two, she gleaned, for the, she worked. This is all about grace. Friends, if you don't see it yet, you see Boaz He's a kinsman redeemer. He's not first removed. Somebody else is going to be in the story. There is tension. Every love story I said has it. We're going to have to resolve that in two weeks. But make sure you see here that this, he is going way beyond the law. This is all about grace. This is the gospel. This is the gospel. This story is screaming about grace. If you're legalistic and if you're religious, you don't get this story. But if you're somebody that loves the Lord and you know it's about having a relationship and you know it's about what happened 2,000 years ago on a cross, you get this because you have experienced it and I have experienced his incredible and unenduring, unending grace and mercy and love. How could we not think, once again, Charles Spurgeon, said when he looked at he looked at Boaz and he looked at Jesus he said Boaz was or Jesus was our glorious Boaz I'm sorry Jesus was our glorious Boaz what he did on the cross and he sacrificed and he gave when he didn't have to he went beyond the law because he saw every single one of us that's what happened here and we have a song for you Megan I pray right now Lord Lord, I ask that you would anoint this song. Lord, I ask that it would touch every single heart in this place. 
seal this meeting, Lord, by the power of your spirit. Have your way, Lord, even as we close. We may have stopped studying the word, Lord, but your power and your spirit never stops, and it works 24-7. And Lord, I beseech you by your hand that you continue to touch and that you pour pour it out right here, right now. Because we believe. We're a people that still believe and still are looking to you. Lord, don't hide your face from us. Megan said to me in the car yesterday, as we were heading somewhere, and she played this song, and I I was holding back tears, shocker. She said, I'm going to sing this song tomorrow in church. Oh, just get ready. You can sing it, please. Be blessed. Ushers. Thanks for listening to City on a Hill's podcast. For more resources, visit us at chccny.com.